fool, said the witch with a savage smile that was almost a snarl. Do you think your master can rob me of my rights by mere force? He knows the deep magic better than that. He knows that unless I have blood, as the law says, all Narnia shall be overturned and perish in fire and water. Welcome to the Chronicles of Podcast, where we are doing a chapter-by-chapter deep dive into the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. I'm Kel. And I'm Chase. And thank you so much for joining us today. Just a reminder that today we are going to be talking about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the second book in the Narnian series, uh, but a general warning for the Narnia series as a whole, as well as a heads up that we're probably going to mention other things from other bits of pop culture and life in general. And so if there's anything too out there, we're going to try to give you a spoiler warning uh, before we talk about it. But today we are discussing The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Chapter 13, Deep magic from the dawn of time, which seems like a mouthful for a chapter. Mm. Is is this the land before time? Is this where that comes from? Yes, I believe this is where the crossover starts, where uh, Aslan fights uh, Littlefoot and Sarah. He crushes them because they're children. <laughs> With a swipe of his paw. A swipe of his paw. Chase, can you uh, give us a summary real quick? Yeah, absolutely. So we return to Edmund. Walking through the forest with the witch, walking further than he thought he or anyone else could walk, because why not have some more walking chapter? Um, they finally stop. I wanted exactly what we all wanted, Gail. But they finally stop, and the witch and her dwarf servant begin to talk in low tones about whether the prophecy could even just go ahead and be prevented with only three humans on the board. Whether Aslan's presence could thwart their plans. And eventually they determine that they will use Edmund for something involving the stone table and putting it to its proper use. Then suddenly a wolf rushes up to report that the other children had arrived at the stone table and that Mogram, the chief of police, the big wolf, had been killed. The wolf said they should run while they can, but the witch says no. Instead, they should call all her supporters there, the giants, the werewolves, the ghouls, and all the rest, to meet them so they can fight. Then she ordered the dwarf to prepare the victim. Edmund was tied against a tree, and the dwarf, the dwarf undid his collar, and he heard the sound of a knife being sharpened. The queen takes off her sleeves for some reason, and then suddenly he heard another sound. Hooves, shouts, a scream from the witch. Edmund is untied. The witch seemingly escaped, and the party, uh, the rescue party of centaurs, unicorns, and birds carries Edmund back to the stone table. We learn that the witch had used her magic to disguise herself and the dwarf as a boulder, and that she held on to her wand too, just in case you were worried. In a very sudden and unprompted scene change, we cut to the other children, waking up and hearing the news that Edmund is back and hanging out with Aslan. And there's no need to tell us what Aslan said to Edmund, but Edmund would never forget it, even though he won't share it, so why do we need to know? Either way, Edmund is reunited with his siblings. He apologizes to each of them. They all forgive him. Everyone feels awkward for a minute, but their awkward feelings are interrupted by the arrival of a messenger from the enemy. The dwarf, who Aslan calls a son of Earth? I, I guess forgetting that Narnia is not on Earth? The dwarf says the Queen of Narnia would like safe passage to come and speak with Aslan about a win-win proposition she has for him. Aslan says, sure, as long as she leaves her wand outside the camp. This is agreed to, and the witch enters, bringing icy vibes with her. The witch points out that they have a traitor in their camp, asks if Aslan has forgotten the deep magic. She says that written into the very foundation of Narnia is the fact that every traitor is her prey for every treachery she has the right to kill. Mr. Beaver calls her the Emperor Beyond the Sea's hangman. And then the witch makes a point that Edmund is her property. That even Aslan knows that she's entitled to blood for his actions. Aslan confirms that this is the case and then goes to talk with the witch after a while, Aslan calls everyone back, saying that they've come to an agreement. The witch has renounced her claim on Edmund's blood. The witch asks how she can be sure Aslan will follow through on the arrangement. 
he roars and she runs away. The end. The end. Uh, Chase, the theme of this chapter is secrets. Because secret secrets are no fun unless they're only between Aslan, the Queen, the Emperor Beyond the Sea, C.S. Lewis, uh, and not the audience. Because why would we need to know? No, we definitely don't need to know. But what we do need to know, Cal, I have a secret for you. Yes. We simply must get we back have to. <laughs> Please, Chase. We haven't spent enough chapters talking about walking. Yes, yes, absolutely. What we needed more than anything else is just a vivid description of walking through the woods and how hard it is to walk and how long we have been walking. Chase, we're we're very well aware of how long Edmund's been walking because C.S. Lewis has devoted like half of this book to being like, oh my lord, look how long this is. This is ridiculous. Like We're in chapter 13, and 13. five chapters of this book have been pure walking. Yeah. This is <laughs> this is a this is a tough one. And you and I talked off air about this a little bit. But this is thir- chapter 13 of 17. This is spoiler alert, right? We talked about it in the summary. This is the chapter where they're going to, like, Aslan is going to agree off screen to, you know, die on behalf of Edmund. And then chapter 14 is where he is going to die on behalf of Edmund. Chapter 15 is where he is going to, or like, they're going to actually start the fight. 15 of, like, chapters 14 and 15 of 17 are when, like, action actually starts. And you have, like, five or six chapters, like, a third of your book is devoted to just useless walking chapters. This chapter is what, in, you know, like, literary terms, you'd call the rising action. Yeah. And it is, like, the fourth to last chapter of the book. There's, this should be, like, the midpoint. This should yeah. be like right before the big, like the big actual eventful part of the book, not the very tail end. C.S. Yeah. Lewis is about to, like all of the your favorite parts, if you've ever heard or read or seen The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe before, all of your favorite parts of this story are at crammed into the very end. Like, you know, no one ever goes, you know what my favorite part of Narnia is? I love hearing Edmund complain about how far they've walked. I don't know. My favorite part of Narnia series is hearing how we shouldn't lock ourselves in wardrobes. Hey, at least we got a lot of that. And we haven't gotten it in a long time, so I'm hoping for a second one or another one by the end of this book. If there's not a callback, I'm going to be furious. I think he's going to have missed an opportunity. But back to our story. Uh, You know who else is furious? The witch and the dwarf, because they start uh, because Edmund is complaining about how far they've walked and how far it's. There's no way that anyone could have walked as far. It's a very classic kid hyperbole, and the uh, the dwarf and the witch start talking. They're uh, they're conspiracy theorizing uh, about you know could they uh, you know have just one member or like three members of the prophecy still stand and it you know not work like. What if the wolf comes back and brings us good news? Well, if the wolf comes back, it's probably not good news. Like, which is, you know, that that's a step because, like, what if Magrim had killed all the children? Like, that would be, you know, for the witch and the dwarf, that would be good news. I mean, at this point, it might be good news for us too. But <laughs> it's uh, could be ends the story. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this scene, I don't know. It really shows how loose their rule is. Yeah. They have no clue whether it makes a difference if they get rid of Edmund. They're wondering if they can just wait for Aslan to leave and then attack the children. Like you'd think someone who calls themselves queen, like yeah. like is in charge, would have more systems in place. Like she would have more goons, more info, or really anything. You would like, think, but a 13-year-old just took out her chief of police, so I mean, and there's only one other police officer. Man, I, so basically find out here is that her whole operation is just her and the dwarf and that's it that's the entire they, government that's the only reason i can think why she's letting him live because she just executed like four woodland creatures for like telling the truth about father christmas 
And this dwarf continually says things that are like, kind of like, like, I was like, dude, you're, you're speaking real boldly against a, like your boss who has got a short fuse. And he's like, he's her entire cabinet. Like, (laughs) right. But she goes, you know, how, you know, if only three of the, you know, four thrones at Caravel were filled, would that not fulfill the prophecy? It's like, what difference would it make now that he is back referring to Aslan? It's like, why does she not kill him on the spot? Like, she made one rule and then don't say the name, and he followed the rule. It's he, fine. Yeah, but he is it the spirit of the law or the letter of the law here? Because he's everyone knows who he's talking about. It's he. It's I Aslan. Mean, right. As we learn later in this chapter, she's very into the letter of the law. She knows it very well. She knows it's you know, apparently carved into the side of a hill, a spear's length deep, which, which is impressive. Difficult to read though. Um, who knows? Uh, but this is, uh, so she, they talk about, you know, all these things and, um, the wolf, uh, who was attacked by the, you know, other people, uh, from Aslan comes running back and tells them that they're gathering at the stone table. And so they can't kill Edmund at the stone table because though that would be the preferred spot, obviously, uh, because of reasons that the audience does not know. At what Uh, they, they basically tell us that the stone table's original use is killing Edmund. Like that's kind of like, like CSS does not mention this here, but I guess the stone table is like the, the altar, the sacrificial spot, but like he never talks about it, never says anything about it. He kind of just assumes that these kids are going to know about this sacrificial system in Narnia. Yeah. We get zero other context and it really kind of builds up the picture that we get later in this chapter that this is the witch's role. Like the stone table is her favorite place because which is the one who gets to kill the traitors, which it's like a lot to say about that as we get yeah, to later. Oh my gosh. It's, uh, it's a weird but, time. Yeah. But in this announcement from this other wolf, we find out that gasp Magrim was killed by a 13 year old. Um, and the witch is like, all right, she goes into planning mode and she tells this wolf, all right, go summon all of my people. Go summon all of our forces. And this is the description of the forces that she is gathering. And at a certain, like the first part of it, you're like, okay, like these are things. And then I think C.S. Lewis kind of just starts throwing words in there uh, randomly because he goes, gather our forces, giants, werewolves, Spirits of the Bad Trees. Okay, we heard about them earlier. Ghouls. Boggles? And I looked that up, and it's like a spirit or a ghost, I think. I, I'm assuming it's like maybe a bogart, like from Harry Potter. I don't know. Uh, ogres. She's gathering Shrek. Uh, minotaurs. Uh, you know, the other side has bulls with heads, or with, you know, the heads of men. She's got to have men with the heads of bulls. That makes sense. Uh, cruels? Like, just the word cruel? But with an S on it, uh, hags, which I, like a witch, I guess. I don't know. Specters, which is also ghosts, ghoul. Like, what's I, he's really playing some semantics here. Well, I mean, and then J.K. Rowling would agree that there's a difference between a ghoul and a ghost, but we sure. won't get into it. That's a different thing. But <laughs> the last one she mentions right here, and she's going to do this in the next chapter as well, but toadstools. Go gather the toadstools, Chase. I'm assuming giant mushroom people. I'm I'm assuming from Mario. Like like what? <laughs> now here's a real question: If you jump on their head, do they die? Uh, do you do you jump on their head, or do you eat them and grow larger? Maybe both. Mm. Questions for C.S. Lewis for another time, but. She's like, gather my forces, and while you're gathering them, I have business to attend to here, and that business, Chase, is because we don't have a stone table at hand, let's just kill Edmund on this tree step. Let me take out my arms. That is, uh, you couldn't see me, but that was the action of me, uh, you know, moving my sleeves up so that my, my arms were bare, because we need to make sure that the audience knows that the witch's arms were bare for this moment. We were given zero reason. It's not like 
and she was maybe, surprisingly muscular. Maybe, it's maybe, not like she was like maybe it was like, like a practical shit on her arm. Like maybe it's it was just, a practical thing where it's like, have you ever tried to shoot a basketball with long sleeves? Like your arms are kind of constricted. Maybe it's kind of like that where she's like, man, my range of motion and my stabbing arm is really limited by these long sleeves. Maybe, but uh, next chapter, spoiler alert, we're going to find out that she does the exact same thing when she's going to, and again, spoiler alert, kill Aslan. Oh my God, I can't believe you said it. Uh, yeah, it's, I don't know, it's a, it's a weird detail, but there's a lot of weird details that C.S. Lewis throws in here, uh, but it's, you know, who knows. But so she says... This is a terrifying line to me. She goes, prepare the victim, which like is a very like serial killer, you know, ask like line, which I guess she is. I mean, uh, this just tells me that she definitely like she enjoys her job. Hey, She's you know what? Uh, you're, you're never working. And if you love what you do, am I right? Uh, so I guess find your thing. And if your thing is murdering children on a tree stump, maybe like reconsider but there's other jobs to each their own uh so edmund uh you know he is standing here looking at the born arms of the the witch about to stab down on him when all of a sudden he hears some noises some strange sounds and then a moment of confusion from every direction sounds and uh, you know, animal noise and hooves and beatings of wings and a scream from the witch and confusion all around him. And all he knows is that he's being untied and he's being let go. Uh, and we find out that this is the rescue party sent from Aslan. Yeah. And this rescue party, I'll just let you know who's a part of it. Centaurs. Yeah. Makes sense. Yep. Y unicorns. Sure. They could okay. be deadly. I, I can see how a horn would be helpful. Yep. Yep. Deer. Okay, uh, it's kind of like a watered-down unicorn in this scenario, but sure, we'll go for it. It still, still has antlers. Uh, okay. Sure. Birds? Oh, these were those king, those kingfishers and, and thrushes and bluebells. Yes, yes. The, uh, the thrush came to the rescue. In, in the picture in my book, they look like geese. Oh. <laughs> I mean, what's a goose I mean, geese, are, geese are mean. Like, I mean, I'm not going to pick a fight with a goose, so like, I guess that's that fits. So you know, I mean, at this point, the entire witch's side is literally just the witch and the dwarf, because the wolf is already gone, and it's just the two of them. So yeah. I so, guess you can res do a rescue plan with just a bird and a deer. But my thing here is, so only the centaurs have thumbs, and so they're they. You know, I don't know how many they sent here. Uh, but I think there's good reason, and it makes more sense, why they're so inept at, you know, their job. Because, yes, they do rescue Edmund. Congratulations. You, uh, you know, prevented the murder of a child. So that's good. Uh, yeah. But also, like, the witch and the dwarf were right there. And you just missed them? And Chase... Well, it, it seems that they got away, Kel. It seems they got away, but... Let's just ignore this suspicious boulder and tree stump for a sec. Um, that that boulder looks a lot like two people huddled together. It's, bro. Okay, so listeners, if you are not reading along with us, here's what happens. So, uh, Edmund gets rescued, and they you, you hear this, like, random dialogue from these random people that uh, Edmund doesn't know about. Uh, you know, where's the witch? And, you know, I didn't see her after I knocked the knife out of her hand, and... You know, oh, I guess she's escaped and blah, blah, blah. And so Edmund is freed. And then it goes into this description of an old tree stump and a fair-sized boulder. And you're like, everyone would have thought that it was just a stump and a boulder. But let me tell you that if you had begun to look at it, you would have noticed they were moving. And actually, the queen had the power to turn herself into other things. And so in the midst of this confusion, as soon as she dropped the knife, she turned herself and the dwarf into a boulder and a tree stump, and no one noticed. Because why not? The only time this happens, the only time it needs to happen, it is a very convenient ability to be able to change your shape. Here's the thing. Like, for me, it would have made more sense had she just escaped. Like, 
we already know that she's capable. Like she's a strong woman. Like she's seven feet tall. If you had just told me the queen grabbed the dwarf and ran through the woods and like was able to, you know, fend off the animals, I'd been like, yeah, that's believable. You know, it's not believable. A group of Aslan's finest warfare bearing creatures not noticing someone shapeshift from a giant human into a giant rock. It's uh it's like Kirby just kind of turning <laughs> to a boulder. But do you know what I know every time that I play Super Smash Bros? Anytime someone's where Kirby, Kirby is? <laughs> they're gonna turn into a rock. And I know exactly where Kirby's rock is. Yeah, you, you I'm know never like to stand underneath Kirby flying. Yeah. I I'm never looking at a rock or Kirby flying above me and going, yeah, this is fine. I don't, I don't see anything wrong with this. Like this is a normal rock. Oh, I should get out of the way of this rock. Right. That this is dumb. Like as C.S. Lewis makes sure to tell us they would have been very surprised to see that she did that. So yeah, obviously I, we're looking for it. Uh, <laughs> I guess you know, be prepared for anything, including your adversaries turning into boulders at the drop of a knife. Uh, but you know what I was not prepared for, Kel? What? The transition from this scene to the next scene. I don't think anyone was. Didn't it's exist. Choppy. Uh, because it immediately goes from this description of Boulder Queen to, all right, the other children woke up. And when they woke up, Edmund's back with Aslan. And this, that's this all the, the description you get of the transition. Yeah, this is the very next line. There's no, there like, is no, there's no extra space between one paragraph and the next. There's All no, your time, C.S. Lewis, spent on talking about Edmund walking pointlessly, and you can't even tell people that he made, like that he was taken back to the encampment. Yeah, it's one like, more he, line. He had a he had a word limit, and apparently he reached his on. <laughs> Did Bolton. he? Did he have a word limit? I don't know about that, uh, but. So the other children wake up and they see that, oh, look at that. Edmund has been rescued. He is back at the encampment. And he's talking with Aslan. Chase, do you before know what? he's talking with Aslan, they have to stop and have breakfast before they can go and see him. Sure. You know. It's, a, it's important. It's, it's the most important meal of the day. So. Man. But here's the thing. They go and they see Edmund talking with Aslan. Edmund has just betrayed them. Aslan is the creator of all of Narnia. He is the ruler. He is the, you know, Jesus figure in this story. And it says they talked for a long time. But Chase? I'd love to know what they talked about. I'd love to know too. But you know what's unfortunate? You don't need to because I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to tell you all these other things that don't matter. But you know what I'm not going to tell you? What they talked about. Why would you not tell us? Well, there's no need to tell you, and no one ever heard what Aslan was saying. But it was a conversation which Edmund never forgot. No one was curious. No one wanted to know, like, is Edmund not, you know, like, if his life has changed so much by this conversation, why is he not telling people about it? Yeah. I mean, at this point, why why tell us, why point out that he's not going to tell us what he said? Why not just say... They saw Aslan talking with Edmund, and by the look of him, he would never forget that conversation. Yeah. Like, why point out the fact that you're not saying anything? Like, this is such if, bad... I was, if I was a kid hearing this, it would drive me nuts, because I'm an adult reading this, and it drives me nuts. It's bad storytelling. <laughs> yeah. It, it is bad storytelling to say, but I don't need to tell you that, on something that is... You point out how significant it is, and then you say, but I'm not going to tell you, and then just move on and never address it again. You need to talk about the significant, important things, or else, like, why should kids even care about this repentant conversation? Because this is the conversation they have, is about Edmund's mistakes and his repentance and joining with Aslan, I assume, but I don't know. Yeah. It, uh, I'm going to unveil a little bit of how much of a nerd I am. But so in high school, I was on a competitive journalism team. What? <laughs> I've known you for a long time and I did not know this. Yeah, I used to do competitive feature writing. Uh, all, I was set to go to state and some drama happened that kept me from going doing that. But uh, mm. 
those competitive yeah. journalism politics, man. One of the, or really just uh, bad assistant principals not doing their jobs. Anyways, uh, that's not what I'm talking about, though. The uh, one principle that we always emphasize, and, and it's similar in like writing sermons or writing anything, really. If you have a line that is not contributing to the main point that you're trying to accomplish in your article, cut it. Yeah. And if you like it, if it's not doing work, cut it. It's writing 101. It's really, you do that in like your, your tax test, your star test, your AP test, your any test you're going to take is like, they're going to have the question like, which of these lines doesn't belong? Because in random reading in English literature, like test taking, they always throw in those stupid lines. They're like, this line doesn't really matter. You can just take it out. This doesn't matter. Apparently, they tried to do the star test online this week, and it crashed. Typical. Some teacher friends were not happy about it, but I guess C.S. Lewis didn't learn his lesson. This sounds par for the course. But, so, they have this life-changing conversation, and Edmund gets brought back to his siblings, and everyone wanted to say something, which would make it really clear that they were all friends. Edmund starts shaking all their hands and saying, I'm sorry. And everyone is, you know, wanting to make him feel better, uh, make him let them know that they're all friends again. Um, you know, something ordinary and natural, but no one could think of anything to say. And it's just really awkward. Yeah, they just feel awkward. And, and like, I get that. Lewis uses for it. It's real, but also it's funny that you write in an awkward silence. Like, um, it's, it's just, it's funny. It's relatable, but it's, it's just, it's not what you expect in this moment, but before they have too much time to dwell on the awkwardness, a dwarf, the dwarf from the witch comes in. Um, Kel, don't you mean a son of earth? Dude. Okay. I love this title. I think that's a dope title that Aslan gives to an enemy. Like son of earth is pretty cool. Dope title in theory, but I have some, some issues. Four problems with it. Sure. <laughs> One Narnia is not earth. So he Correct. literally isn't a son of earth. Second, in The Magician's Nephew, all the animals came out of the ground. If I remember correctly, I don't think the dwarves actually did. I think the, the human-like creatures just kind of walked over a hill. Um, yeah, I mean, they probably came from the ground just over the hill. May, but. Maybe, but either way, all the animals in Narnia came from the ground. So if you're using Earth to say ground, wouldn't all the animals be sons of Earth? Uh, three, can can we just not refer to people by their heritage. You should not start calling people son of whatever their ethnic background is. That will get real problematic real fast. Sure. Uh, for son of Adam and daughter of Eve implies that their first parents were Adam and Eve. Sure. Does this make Earth his daddy? Like this is not this is not a thing. Who knows, man? But it's it's a thing where like maybe he's referring to Earth in lower E you know, lowercase e, but he capitalizes it in the spelling, so which refers to the planet as opposed to the substance. Uh, but I assume that he's, you know, taking some some uh, some writing out of the his Tolkien-esque uh, brothers' pages where dwarves are literally, like, born from rocks. Uh, so... And maybe, yeah, maybe it's just the Hebrew word arets, which is ground and land and and world and all of it mixed into one <laughs> i think these kids reading this book would definitely pick up on these contexts so i mean it, it's legit pretty clearly implied there I, I think we're just picking nits um, sure. uh and uh but he has come to deliver a message that again this this dwarf must have some stones bro because she goes the queen he's talking to aslan he must have some earths he must have some 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 rocks, some earth, uh, you know. But uh, he uh, he's talking to Aslan, the, who he knows to be the creator and true ruler of Narnia. And he goes, the queen of Narnia and empress of the Lone Islands desires a safe conduct to come and speak with you on a matter which is as much to your advantage as to hers. First of all, like bold move, Cotton. Like I would not be referring to this to this like. Your your boss to the the highest creature in the land in such a way, but also how in the world is anything that follows advantageous for both Aslan and the witch? I mean, it it does work out that way. 
I just love what happens after this of Mr. Beavers scoffing at the title Queen of Narnia and Aslan's solid line. All names will soon be restored to their proper owners. Oh yeah, that line is dope. That I love that line. But right before that, when he's calming Mr. Beaver down, and he says this line twice in this chapter, and it's probably one of my favorite lines. He goes, Peace, Beaver. <laughs> peace, peace, Beaver. I love that Aslan has to say that because Mr. Beaver is real mouthy in this chapter. He interjects over and over again. Several times. Uh, and it, it really, uh, he, the next time he interjects is going to be, it's going to have some interesting uh, implications to it. But yeah. in the meantime, peace, Beaver. Holds your tongue. Uh, and, uh, you know, Aslan grants the dwarf, uh, you know, his, his request that he will allow the uh, witch to have safe passage into their area. He sends some leverage to go accompany the dwarf. Uh, and then a few minutes later, the witch herself walks to the top of the hill. Uh, and he she comes and stands straight before Aslan. Everyone feels uncomfortable. Everyone feels a little nervous and scared. Um, and then so the Lewis and Aslan both look perfectly comfortable, though. So here's the thing about that. Because C.S. Lewis writes that. He says the only two people who seemed to be quite at ease were Aslan and the witch. But then he's immediately going to write things about how the witch is terrified of Aslan. Uh, it says that she won't look him in the eyes. It's it, like... She, you know, talks about, you know, deferring to him in some ways. Like, she's going to be bold and confident in speaking the truth that she has to speak. But also, she's not, like, at ease. Like, it's not like she's speaking with an equal. Yeah, and and it's, I mean, it's all part of something that I'll talk about more and further up and further in. But this kind of dualism that C.S. Lewis paints between Aslan and, and the witch. It's a... Uh, it's a weird situation, but either way, she's got a lot to say about the deep magic. Chase, uh, you, you've mentioned the deep magic. Let's assume that I've forgotten it. Can you tell me more about that, this? It's not that I don't know what that is, but what about uh, everyone else here? Just in case they are curious what, what this deep magic this is, is. You share this for the is, crowd. This is such a choppy way to accomplish exposition because it, it goes so against Aslan's character. Aslan isn't cheeky like this and it's trying so hard. But yeah, the deep magic. So there, it's kind of four sources of deep magic, if you will. Uh, yeah. But basically this writing on the stone table, the symbols carved into the fire stones on the secret hill. Yep. Deep as a uh, as a spear. As a spear, remember, which is like six feet deep-ish. Yeah, which like, I don't know if you've ever read carved writing, but actually the deeper it is, the harder it is to read. But uh, it's the writing engraved on the scepter of the emperor beyond the sea. And it's the magic the emperor put into Narnia at the very beginning. Yeah. Which, so all this is kind of dope. My questions here are who, what, when, where, and why. Yeah, it's this is this is really neat if you if he doesn't paint himself into a corner by writing the magician's nephew later on. Yeah, which just like to point out for the listeners, C.S. Lewis. So the magician's nephew is a prequel, but it was written sixth in the series. C.S. Lewis could have easily, easily just taken his time to reread the books he had already written to make sure that he didn't violate his own canon. That is what you would call good storycraft, like good writing. Yeah, sure. He goes, he really, really ignores everything that he's previously written in a way that makes it more complex. Like, that's why we keep nitpicking on this stuff. It's not because we don't like the story. It's no. because he breaks his own rules over and over and over again. Like and we saw Aslan create Narnia with a song. Like, where did this deep magic law come from, and why was it needed if Aslan created it in such an organic and life-filled way as right? Sin? And we also know in this book and from the magician's nephew, 
that the queen is a foreigner to Narnia. She yeah. was not from here. So she why was, would you write her into the rules if she's not from there? Why would she get this amazing like boon of being able to like own all traders? Like who's her agent that wrote this into her contract? Can he rework mine? Like it this how, is how does she know what's on the Emperor Beyond the Sea's scepter? We, to to my knowledge, no one besides Aslan, who is the son of the Emperor Beyond the Sea, has seen the Emperor Beyond the Sea. Because if we're going back to our Jesus and God the Father metaphors, no one knows the Father save the Son. And if you've seen the Son, Aslan, that is your way of seeing the Emperor Beyond the Sea. I don't know the Trinitarian dual, like you know, uh, you know, uh, values of Narnia. If there is a Holy Spirit in creation in Narnia here, but we're, we're missing m- missing a component. But either way, like, but we what just we don't know, know the secret history of Narnia that led to these random monuments. Did like, did did the Queen have some secret interaction with the Emperor at some point? Like, this is this is the problem of of writing stories that change your plot and your canon and your history. Because if you take Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in and of itself, disregard everything that happens in the other Narnian books, this is fine. Because what you've done is now said, okay, the witch at some point was more or less like Satan. She had this, like, you know, he's really trying to hammer in this Satan versus Jesus, as you mentioned, the dualism like yeah. context where Satan has some sort of relationship with God, yeah. obviously subservient. He cannot overthrow God, the father. How, and like, just as the witch is still under the, you know, authority of emperor beyond the sea. And, but there, there's some sort of relationship previously here and that Aslan and the witch are now at this eternal struggle of, Good versus evil. Yeah, which, as I'll get into later, not great theology. But not great theology, but this is his theology. Yeah, it, it probably is C.S. Lewis's theology. Uh, but, yeah, it just it makes no sense. Why would you write the witch getting to kill people into the rules in the first place? The, the rule doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's uh, a bad, bad system. Bad call I, by the ref. Here's the thing. I get that C.S. Lewis is basically like, I have to figure out a way for Aslan to die on behalf of someone who is treacherous or who, you know, has obviously cr- committed some sort of sin or something. C.S. Lewis uh, is trying to bend Aslan's paw. He's, yeah. he's saying this is the only way it can happen. Because right. otherwise there would be no otherwise there would be plenty of other options here but he's trying uh, to say no this is this is the only one and as someone who has read plenty of fiction and plenty of fantasy literature uh where someone dies on behalf of someone else because Jesus's death and resurrection trope is a monumental piece in fiction and literature yep. sacrificing yourself on behalf of someone else is like the thing to do. And, and so there's so many different ways they could have accomplished this, but he picks a really weird and convoluted way to do it in her line. Uh, like strange holding up his finger. Yeah. Like, so this is now the line I want to talk about real quick. Cause she says, you know, that every traitor belongs to me as my lawful uh, prey. And that for every treachery, I have a right to a kill. First of all, that's very broad and wouldn't therefore everyone who's ever lied, everyone who's ever, you know, uh, betrayed someone's confidence, everyone who's ever disappointed someone, wouldn't they belong to the witch in order to die? Like, Oh, that's, that's your theology. C.S. Lewis's theology is only large acts of personal betrayal count. But like, why was this one so bad comparatively why is tumness not included here what about the turn what about the turncoat beavers who were well well aware are turncoats like what about all of these 
what about all of the, the the animals and creatures under her existence? Like, why does she not kill them? Like, she says that her this rule demands blood, and like, so for me, it's it, it, it's a it's a weird it's a weird you know little thing to throw in here. But regardless, Edmund's life belongs to her, uh, and Mister Beaver's interjection says, "So you were the emperor's hangman, right?" And you mentioned this earlier. But like this means that she was brought into Narnia intentionally, contractually, as the executioner, as the hangman, when we know that that's not what happened. Yeah, which we don't get confirmation, yes or no, that Mr. Beaver is right here. So I'm going to chalk that up to Mr. Beaver speaking from ignorance, because we, if we know anything about Mr. Beaver, is that Mr. He Beaver speaks from ignorance. But yeah, it's not rebutted, and it's just kind of taken as, no, this is the backstory. Yeah. And so it isn't till Magician's Nephew that we get any other version of events, which is what makes this so egregious. It's that, like, no, this is this was C.S. Lewis's plan A, and then he just goes and retcons, but doesn't, cr- like, weave it into itself. Yeah. It's crazy. This, this is where his theology and this is why we want to do some corrective theology here is really tough and interesting because by saying this that she was the emperor's hangman he is intentionally creating a dualism between good and evil and there's some real weird implications of here theologically speaking because if there is this divine eternal dualism that means that the emperor beyond the sea this force of good, whatever, created not just good, but also evil intentionally. This is where, you know, even Christian theology, you have to, you know, really wrestle and struggle with this, but that's not what we believe. Like that, you know, Satan was not created to be evil. If he, if the queen... It is what a lot of people believe. Sure. It's just not what the Bible teaches. It's not what the Bible teaches. But this is saying the witch was intentionally placed in Narnia to be a force of evil to combat Aslan, the force of good. This has got really tough implications for it. And it, I don't know why you're putting this in a kid's story. Uh, this is not necessarily what you need to do. And Aslan, I think, recognizes that this is bad theology and goes, peace, Beaver. Uh, and he's trying to shut that down. I at least hope that that's what he's doing. I mean, the, the peace just extends to all the things that Beaver ever says. But uh, Susan does say something in response to all this talk that I thought was a cool moment, though. Yeah. Susan asks, can't we do something about the deep magic? Isn't there something you can work against it? Yeah. Aslan replies, work against the emperor's magic? As if it's an offensive suggestion. and No one ever brings it up again. And it is a cool idea that gets kind of just sprinkled in here at the end of this conversation. And people who don't have a good understanding of the Old Testament try to do this with Jesus, right? They're like, well, Jesus is this nice, loving, forgiving guy, and the God of the Old Testament is this it's crazy, me. like, evil, like, like warmonger, and obviously they're trying to do different things and have different values, and so let's throw out the old and take on the new. Um, but that's not a good understanding of the Bible either. That is, and so this is good theology from C.S. Lewis to say, like, no, like the son follows in the same way as the fa- father. They hold the same character, the same values. They're doing mm-hmm. the same things. We just have to understand their context in a way that yeah. actually makes sense of it, which not yeah. a lot of people do the work of. Sure. They have a unified sovereign will, and the son willingly submits to the father, not being less than the father, but is willing to concede to ultimately the father's will here right because they have the same will but kel what about the dual will of god and lion uh man i will come up next chapter actually that's gonna come up next chapter guys we if you're listening to this and you're like man i didn't come here for you know 
you know, Bible study session, like deep theology. These are the, like this chapter, the next one, and probably the one after are by far the ones where it's like, you kind of have to address these things in any like deep dive podcast because yeah. there's so much, this is where he just crams in all of his theology. And I mean, it is part of the thematic strokes of this book. It's part of the Absolutely. Like, actual work that he's doing in in writing. Like it, it would be, we would not be taking his work seriously to not point out the things that he's implying both or saying both implicitly and explicitly through through these chapters. So we're pointing out what's there. Uh, sure. But I'd like my my dual will joke to absolutely. Oh, I've got a I've got another theology joke coming up here in just a second. That I think you'll appreciate, but who knows? Uh, so Aslan then, after Susan makes this suggestion to go against the Emperor's will, he says, "Everyone, fall back. I will talk to the witch alone." Oh shoot, it's about to go down. Actually, it's not. Um, and then they just chat for a little bit. Uh, and they talk, and no one knows what they're saying. Uh, and he says, you can all come back. I've settled the matter. She has renounced the claim on your brother's blood. Yay! I'm so glad with this result. I'm sure that everything is fine and not bad at all, and this will have no repercussions uh, that we can see in the next chapter. Um, but, Chase, this is this is my, here's my, my joke for you. So even as someone who affirms, like, and this may come as a surprise, who knows, this is not the conversation I necessarily had here, but as someone who probably affirms most of the aspects of predestination and, and the tulip, uh, you know, values, if you're aware of those, this seems to be even too limited of atonement uh, for, for, this, for this world, because Aslan's, like, a limited atonement, if you're aware, is the, you know, atonement for just one person, uh, this is limited to not the whole of Nardia, not his army or his followers, but to one person. Yeah. Just yeah. It's a, uh, it's very limited atonement. Hyper limited. Very, not a, uh, not a very effective uh, uh, work of, of sacrifice, but I don't know. It, communicate it kind of brings up something that I'll talk about a lot in my further up and further in for next chapter is just kind of the us versus them mm -hmm. mentality that the two sides of this set up in a way that really makes it like, well, everyone who's on Aslan's side are the good guys, the sure. blanket good guys. And everyone on the witch's side are the blanket bad guys. Absolutely. And there's no intermingling of the two. There's no nuance. And that's where in this setup, it kind of becomes a thing where Edmund's the only one who needs help. So yeah. as long as we take care of that bad person who did that bad thing, then we're fine. It's not any recognition of, oh, maybe I need this too. Sure. And that's where and I think that's this where is, the story is limited. The story is limited. I think that's definitely a sign of fantasy and fiction literature from the 50s, right? Uh, I mean, look at, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien, one of my favorite authors of one of my favorite stories. Like, Lord of the Rings is incredible. But do you know what Lord of the Rings doesn't have? Nuance. Gray area, right? The Like, it's literally, like, the good guys who are all of these, you know, other, you know, races, like humans, elves, dwarves, and then the bad guys who are orcs. They're bad, they're ugly, they're evil. They're led by a flaming eyeball. Like, you know who is bad. You know who is good. And there is no in-between, right? Uh, there is no room for, like, oh, man, everyone's got, like, gray. And that's something that, like, recent fantasy and recent fiction have really tried to dive into more. Is yeah. like, hey, everyone Game has Game this. Game of Thrones. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Read Game so of Thrones. Read Brandon Sanderson. Read, uh, like, any recent literature. Even Harry Potter. Right, you're going to see uh, Harry have to struggle with the darkness inside of him, and yeah. have to wrestle with this. And he's going to talk to his, uh, you know, mentors and father figures, and they're going to say, "Harry, like, it's not just like bad guy, like Death Eaters versus good guys. Uh, it's everyone has got like light and darkness in them. They've got good and evil in them. It's what you, it's what you do." 
Yeah, at least in the second half of that series. The first half of that series, the bad guys are the ugly people and the good guys are the pretty people. Sure, and also the bad guys go to Slytherin, obviously. Yeah, of course. Uh, uh, I, and the pu- the Puffs should be the good guys, but let's not talk about them. That's not, you know, no one ever does. So uh, it's not worth it. But it's this it's this duality that, like, in in previous literature, like in, in the beginning of fantasy, you're not seeing nuance and that's just how things were written because you have to communicate that there is evil and that there is good and there wasn't at the time any precedent for hey everyone has this darkness inside them you just need to communicate that like there is a overall good in god and and that dark versus light is wrapped up in the dualism that i'll talk about more in a minute (laughs) sure but we end the chapter with uh, this interaction between Aslan and the witch, where uh, th- you know Aslan says that the the set the, the the matter has been resolved and everyone's cheering, but the witch looks extremely joyful. She looks like she's just won something, and she goes, "How do I know that this promise will be kept?" And Aslan, <laughs> <laughs> I wish that our listeners could see your face there. <laughs> But, I went for a Muppets. <laughs> that was that was extremely accurate then. Uh, so Aslan roars, spelled H A A dash A dash A R R H. Don't know how I would spell roar like that, but to each their own. So Aslan roars, and he it's this in great and intimidating moment where he rises from his throne and he growls and he roars and he intimidates the witch, who is even in this moment. So as we said, spoiler. This is the moment where they have agreed that Aslan is going to give his life on behalf of Edmund. Huge victory, supposedly, for the witch. She is joyful and excited. And even in this moment where she knows that victory is at the tip of her fingers, she is still terrified of Aslan. And I love that. It's a great, great writing piece. For all of our dunks on C.S. Lewis, when he writes Aslan, he writes Aslan so well. Yeah. And yeah. so I, I just love that moment. Yeah. The, there are subtle things that we don't need to dunk on in this book. <laughs> it's just all the non-subtle things that we really, really do need to be like, why didn't you get an editor? Just one. Just one. Any one will do. Really. Even if you had had the kids who were reading your books edit for you, he could have caught some of this stuff. Could have done something. But, Chase, I have roared, and I think it's time for some further up and further in. Would you like to uh, start us off? I would love to. So, as I mentioned, talking more about that dualism. And uh, like we said, although a lot of people treat the Narnia series like it is the Bible and has great theology, we do need to remember that C.S. Lewis is an author pulling from all sorts of different sources to write. and we shouldn't take these stories as a one-to-one way to understand how the Bible pictures the world. Sorry to every evangelical preacher. Um, the reason I point this out is because in this chapter, Lewis does something that is outside of the Christian understanding of the world, and that is establishing a dualistic power structure in Narnia. That, Like we said, dualism is the idea that the world is made up of good and evil light and dark, two equal and opposite forces in the world that are in this constant tension and struggle and ultimately balance. And so think of the classic Eastern symbol of yin and yang, or more modern in that recent Star Wars movie, the dark rises and the light to meet it. The witch is treated as part of the rule book in this story. She's written into the fabric of Narnia as the agent of death as the consequence for traitors. And so the implication here is that she has a right to kill because of Edmund's treachery. She has the right. She is the consequence for sin. And so Aslan will offer himself in Edmund's place, thereby breaking the power and somehow fulfilling the deep magic in a larger way. And so they'll be able to kill the witch and break the cycle. It's an interesting story, but it's actually bad theology because in classical dualism, the, the idea that Lewis is playing with here, it's not Christian theology. So the Bible does say that we have an enemy. 
but Satan is not the one exerting any real lasting or even remotely equivalent power over Jesus in the story. Nor is Satan actually the final boss, if you want to use those terms. Like Satan isn't the one that kills Jesus. Satan is not in charge of judgment. Satan is not in charge of hell, like pop culture likes to depict it. The Bible does not teach that Satan has the right to sinners. The Bible teaches that Satan himself is just one among sinners, uh, fairly powerful, someone who does try to tempt and accuse and bring down those who follow Jesus. But at the end of the day, just another sinner under judgment, not giving judgment, under judgment, along with all who rebel against God. The last enemy to be defeated is death. That That is a line from both the Bible and J.K. Rowling. <laughs> but death is the real power to be overcome in the Christian story. And that's why resurrection is the great promise of faith in Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate power overall. It's not equal. It's not light versus dark. It is a brief shadow in, in a blinding light. God wins. God wins. Man, uh, I've heard, I feel like I've heard that somewhere. I feel like that needs to be preached. Uh, I don't know. I think it'd make like a good book title or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Man, I, don't know. Uh, I feel like the further up and further ends for this chapter and next chapter should basically just be called theology hour with Jason Kell. Uh, Cause that's really what we're going to be talking about. It's just different theological aspects. Uh, Cause mine is going to be talking about the nature of atonement and how atonement requires blood, right? So atonement, for those of you who are listening, very Christian-y word. Uh, you know, that's, that's one of the, the issues with Christianity is that we use these words that really only have context within Christianity. But basically atonement is the, uh, you know, sacrifice on behalf of someone else, uh, that you need something to atone for something else. It is, you need something to cover for the sins and the areas and the mistakes of someone else. And as we've seen in this chapter, the queen, uh, the white witch, states that all traitors belong to her and that every traitor needs, like, it, there is blood, there is death that is required because of their treachery, right? That's something that's stated. And at first, this belongs to Edmund. Edmund is the traitor in this situation, and therefore to, you know, satiate the, uh, the deep magic that he must die. There must be bloodshed. So Aslan's uh, like concession is, hey, you can have my life. I will give you the blood, the death that this treachery deserves and requires, and it will satiate the deep magic. And this is, this is actually good theology from C.S. Lewis, right? Because as you will see throughout scripture, this is a, uh, this is a point of theology that is necessary if you've ever wondered to yourself, why was the cross necessary? Was there no other way? Did, couldn't Jesus have just, boom, cleared our sin, cleared our mistakes and said, all right, you're good to go. The answer is no. The cross had to be the way. His death was ultimately necessary because as you see, starting back with Moses, right? They are in the, the Israelites are in the land of Egypt. And what do they do? After nine plagues, uh, you know, Moses proclaims to Pharaoh, hey, here's your 10th one. Uh, the angel of death is going to sweep through the land and kill the firstborn of all people who are not protected by the blood of these lambs, right? You are given this opportunity to follow God and to do what is necessary. But if you do not, if you, you know, don't uh, protect yourself, right? This is the beginning of the sacrificial system. So what happens is the Israelites, uh, you know, they sacrifice these lambs and they cover the frame of their doorways to their homes with the blood of the lamb. That phrase is going to be important later on in scripture. So hold on to it. Uh, and so they, it's, this is the Passover lamb and its blood is, you know, protecting and it's covering the people inside. So this blood satiates the death that is required for sin, right? That is going to move on into the uh, Israelite sacrificial system where to cover sins, the high priest would have to, you know, uh, bring like the, the people of Israel would bring their sacrifices to the temple, to the altar, and they would be killed and their blood would, you know, temporarily cover them. But because they were killing animals, nothing you could, it never was fully 
you know, uh, like satisfying for this commitment of death and blood. And so this system has to keep being put in place and you do this every year and it's always a thing that happens. And then enter Jesus who sees this, uh, this, this necessity for blood and death to atone for the sins. And he knows that ultimately what this is going to lead to is people are going to have to die on behalf of their own sins. Romans 6.23 part A says that the wages of sin is death. That is what sin and death, that is what sin requires is death. Our uh, rebellion against the Lord has, you know, brought about our death. And so ultimately this atonement will be satisfied in judgment in a negative way. But Jesus does not want that. He loves us. And so he comes down himself, lives a perfect life as both man and God. You know, try to wrap your head around that. Uh, he's not 200% anything. He is fully God, fully man. It just makes sense. Even though it is weird, it doesn't make sense. And so he lives this life and he dies on the cross to satisfy the blood sacrifice, the atonement necessary for all people to be saved, uh, for all people who follow him to be saved. That is the necessity that he has met. He has met the requirement of blood that was needed. And you'll see this actually throughout other points of literature, namely for our sake, Harry Potter, right? Because we've already mentioned it several times, but spoiler alert, if you have not read nor seen the Harry Potter books, this is a huge, uh, you know, spoiler for the uh, end of the series. But uh, Harry will recognize that the only way to save his friends, to save the people fighting for, uh, you know, good and life and freedom uh, the only way to save them is to willingly die on behalf of them uh, and that his death is necessary to cover them. And there, after he comes back from that death, because, uh, you know, fiction and, you know, storytelling and like, I'm not going to get into the details of that too much, but he, all of his friends are covered by that sacrifice uh, because, that's what was necessary. And it's the same principle that you're going to see throughout uh, the rest of Narnia, where Aslan is going to willingly go to his death on behalf of Edmund. And it's this very sacrifice that not only earns the life for Edmund, but also which grants and confirms victory for all of Narnia, because this is how the witch is defeated, because she no longer holds a claim to anything or anyone because Aslan's death satisfies it. So, atonement requires blood. But Kel, how do I know this podcast will be kept? <laughs> exactly what I wanted. Thank you. No problem. As you're cowering and running away in fear, Chase, uh, can you please tell our listeners where they can find more information about our podcast? Absolutely. You can find our podcast wherever you get podcasts uh apple spotify audible all, all the places uh and when you find that podcast we would love for you to leave us a rating and a review five stars please five stars all day <laughs> and and definitely go uh find us on instagram at chronicles of podcast where you can interact with us uh see when we put up new episodes and yeah just be part of that community we got going there uh thank you all for listening and we will see you next week when we talk about chapter 14 the triumph of the witch Rawr. Is that Aslan dying? <laughs> that was. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, bye, everyone. <laughs> Peace. It kind of sucks. Yeah. But that, I get that back to tomorrow morning. So hey. something. So that's something. You get to get poked with a needle. You get to get poked with a needle? Hopefully I don't react to it. If it helps, I didn't. That's so. good. Neither did Courtney. I mean, that's that's hopeful. And we and we had two different vaccines, so Yeah. I'm I'm just hoping they give me a two shot and not a one shot, and because I uh, just want it to work. But see, uh, I wanted the one shot because I didn't want to have to take the second shot and it was yeah. cool. And uh did you get the one shot? Uh-huh. Okay. Okay, so you're done.
I'm done. It was funny because I got it at the same time as my middle school director. And he was immediately like, oh, my God, my arm is so sore. And I was like, I mean, I'm fine. Like, I don't really notice anything. And the next day he was like kind of achy. And I was like, I don't feel anything. Oh, my God. Did they put anything in me? Like, am I? (laughs) Did they just. Did I. Water. Was I was I too complaining or something? Was I like what they're just like? No, nah, screw this guy. Did did the waiter spit in my vaccine? Yeah, that's I, I'm legitimately like, like I know they shoved a needle in my arm, but I think they may have just like stabbed me. 